Hi guys, what follows here now is a selection of the best of the How to Wow podcast series 2020. A series brought to you by Sunday Times Life Lessons with added How to Wow live. Come join us at Chiswick House this May 14th to the 16th for our first ever live How to Wow events. Find out all you need to know by visiting lifelessonsfestival.com and do, because it'd be great to see you. And this series is also brought to you by Athletic Greens. My, my wife's and my well-being gurus go to all-round green super health supplement, our vitamin, and nutritional insurance on the daily, lest we forget to eat what's good for us otherwise, which happens quite a lot more than it should because we're all busier than what is good for us. Check out Athletic Greens at athleticgreens.com. Okay, onwards. First of all, thank you for downloading this How to Wow Pick of the Pods 2020. What follows is a substantial taster of what How to Wow has had to offer over the last 30 episodes. The 30th being the one you're listening to right now. And therefore, a sense of how you might benefit from having How to Wow in your life for an hour or so a week in your ears going forward. Do yourself a favour, subscribe to How to Wow for 2021 and then do me a favour in return, if you don't mind, by remembering to rate and review this Greatest Hits episode because that really, really helps. You wouldn't believe how much. And we begin, my friends, with episode 21 and my conversation with Rich Roll, without whom this podcast would simply not exist because he is my very own podfather. Not to mention the reason my wife, Tasha, and I went fully plant-based back in March after paying him a visit at his mountaintop home in Malibu Canyon. Like I said, I went plant-based 14 years ago. I was uh, 50 pounds overweight at the time and kind of a lazy couch potato sort of guy who had been an athlete in my past but had been sedentary for far too long. I uh, had a bit of a health scare, realized I needed to change my relationship with food, nutrition, physical activity and the like. And I kind of went down a rabbit hole of trying different diets and things and had explored that for maybe six months without much success or results. Uh, and then, you know, the kind of last item on the list to try that I hadn't tried yet was going plant-based. And I was very reluctant to do that. And this was back in 2006. Uh, so there weren't as many of the resources that are now so available and it wasn't as mainstream as it is now. Um, but I did have a buddy, uh, a friend of mine who I used to swim against, who was a big proponent of it. Gave it a shot, not thinking that it would agree with me. But when I removed uh, all animal products from my diet, meat and dairy, and focused on eating whole plant foods, pretty quickly, like within a week, I felt a dramatic shift in my energy. My vitality improved, my sleep improved. I just felt clearer in mind and in you know my physical my physical day to day activities. And I just decided that this was working for me and it built from there and I've been doing it ever since. Um, and what I've discovered along the way as I've continued to educate myself and improve you know, this equation is that eating plant-based diet, it's almost like nature rigs it to be this amazing way to live because it's an optimal way to avoid succumbing to all of these chronic lifestyle ailments that are you know, killing and debilitating so many people from heart disease to diabetes, the high blood pressure and the like. Um, it's also much more environmentally friendly. And obviously you're opting out of that cycle of suffering that you know, kills millions, billions of animals every single year. And so there's kind of a spiritual aspect to it 
as well. Uh, and all of those things together, you know, make it kind of this beautiful lifestyle to live. See, I feel more stable. So the energy thing I get, and it's not, it's not a burst of energy, is it? I find, I find that psychologically and, um, you know, not as far as sort of high and dynamic energy is concerned, but I feel like I, I, my sort of mental stamina, you know, I can go all day. I can mm. go all day and I feel much more stable and balanced. And that's what it's given me. And I, I seem to have, you know, this, I'm not so, so prone to reaction. I've got more time, even more time to, to respond now or, or even choose not to respond. And I really like that. I mean, it's given me so much sort of mental space that, you know, I'm now looking at other things in my life, which were so far on the horizon of, you know, my to-do list or sorting myself out with. And that's what I've found it's given me. But we're six to seven months in, seven to eight months in, actually, Tash mm. and I. Um, you know, does more come? Do you, do you feel more calm, more tranquil, you know, um, more sense? I feel a lot more sensitive as well. And I feel even though I'm more sensitive to, to, to you know, what's going on in the world, it's not it doesn't wobble me more I, I just i'm just more aware of it and in a way you know it's like it's like almost you know an old fm radio when you can't quite get it tuned in and and the white noise is getting less and less and less and everything's getting a little bit more clear do you think that's got something to do with it yeah i mean i think it's really interesting that you're having that experience i mean that really is kind of this you know spiritual awakening that you have. And that's not something that I lead with. It's certainly been my experience, but it's so kind of ephemeral. It's hard for people to wrap their heads around it unless they're experiencing it themselves. I think it begins with when you clean up your, your diet and then you can eat these foods throughout the day and you don't have those peaks and valleys in your energy. Like you don't get the food coma after you eat lunch. Like you can return to your desk, you know, after that noontime meal and have like really good energy. And that allows you to be more present in what it is that you're doing, but also more present in your life. And I think as you continue to do it, you're like, hey man, my whole life I was told that I needed these certain foods in order to be healthy. I got rid of them and I actually feel better. So that's weird. Like maybe, you know, maybe I wasn't told the right thing. So what, what other things in my life have I been kind of um, diluted about. Like for me, it's, it's broadened the aperture and looking more critically at other facets of, of, you know, how we live, um, and really, you know, opened up an opportunity for growth and learning across the board, not just in body, but in mind and in spirit. And will I continue to feel, you know, have you got any heads up of what, what I can get ahead of now? Or should I just let it all happen? I think you should just let it all happen. But I'm I'm so thrilled that like you've made this switch and you've stuck with it. You know, and I think that alone also like making a commitment to something that seems difficult and then and then staying with it and you know even to the point of like ordering the steak and then telling the waiter to take it back like there's a there's a like <laughs> that's an esteemable act, right? Like that gives you a sense of self-esteem. Like I you know, I actually I resisted that temptation and you know, what is the cascading downstream impact of doing something like that. Like I think, you know, all of those little decisions that we make every single day, you know, either move us towards that better individual that we aspire to be or move us away from it. And that's a perfect example of, you know, something that you know seems perhaps somewhat insignificant in the moment, but I think those things are really meaningful. So here we have the book, this beautiful, beautiful, um, uh, it's, it's all it's an opus it's a, it's a tome it's a big coffee table gorgeous photographic 
book. Um, congratulations, Rich. It's it's a piece of work, let me tell you. Uh, just tell everybody what this book is. Uh, it's it's from the podcast. It's inspired by the podcast. It's it's as I say, there is copy in there. There is there's there's literary gold in there. There's there's eye candy in there. Off you go. Yeah. So it's called Voicing Change, and it's basically timeless wisdom and inspiration lifted from the podcast, the show that I've been doing for eight years at this point, um, over 550 conversations, thousands of hours of me talking to really interesting, amazing, compelling people across, you know, a wide spectrum of specialities from diet and nutrition to athletic performance to the arts, et cetera, and everything in between. So the idea was to create um, a printed you know, version of the podcast experience that would be something that the fans would really appreciate, uh, would be a nice introduction for people who not who are not familiar with the work that I do. Right. So let's go to we'll talk about some things you always talk about in your podcast via some of the people in your book, because because uh, that's the way it works, I suppose. Dr. Michael Gervais, who's awesome. And um, he mm. talks about first principles a lot. He does in your book. Uh, this lovely pictures of him. Just explain to people, A, what first principles are and B, how come they're so useful? The idea of first principles, and this is something that also um, comes up in, uh, do you know Farnham Street? Uh, Shane Parrish, the guy who has this blog, he talks about this a lot. He's a guy I've had in the podcast. It's it, The idea is basically that um, a lot of the decisions that we make and the lens through which we see the world is so clouded through our experiences and the hard wiring that we have, that we inherited from, you know, our education and our parental upbringing, et cetera. First principles is this idea that we opt out of all of that to take a step back and analyze a problem or a decision that needs to be made from a completely objective perspective um, rather than, uh, you know, kind of our, our inclination, which is to just do it the way that we've always done it. Um, and it's kind of a rubric for problem solving and analysis that helps us uh, think more clearly and make better decisions for ourselves. So Michael Gervais, being a sports, um, a high performance sports psychologist, is tackling, he's working with these clients who are putting themselves in these high stress environments from Felix Baumgartner, who's the guy who jumped from space. And the guy, there was the other guy, uh, Luke Akins, who jumped out of a plane without a parachute and landed on a net. You know, like he worked, this is the kind of clientele that he works with. And it's about trying to get them fully integrated and centered to be able to manage those high risk environments and analyzing the stresses that they face and the challenges that they're trying to overcome from this place of first principles is a way of freeing your thinking and your kind of emotional attachment to things so that you can perform at your best. And it's really useful, isn't it, Rich? Mm -hmm. It's hard to do too. You realize when you try to do that, how much you're influenced by your innate programming, whether, you know, by dint of, 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 of you know, your software or your hardware, whatever's hardwired into you your whole life. Um, I, would, cause I, I would say now let's roll out the big guns. But the thing is that all, you know, all the people on your podcast are always fantastic. You've saved mm. or you've chosen 50 the best. It won't be the, the last of these books because every single person who's been on would qualify for one of these books in the future. Dan Butner, how fantastic is Dan Butner as a human being? He's unbelievable. One of the most impressive 
extraordinary individuals that I've ever met. Uh, I just, I went up and visited him two weeks ago up in Santa Barbara and we spent the day riding bikes around and hiking. And, you know, he is just a font of wisdom and positivity and creativity and very generous and charismatic. Like he's, he's an unbelievable charmer. Like he, you know, on a, on a, like a, on a Kennedy level, like this guy, he's one of those guys that knows how to make you feel like you're the most important person in the room, but he does it from a place of such genuine compassion. And, um, and he's just a fascinating individual to be with because he's traveled so extensively and he spent so much time with so many different types of people and his ability to storytell around that is super compelling. And the work that he does through Blue Zones, trying to peep to get people to understand, you know, the principles for living, living not only a long life, but the happiest life possible have been massive cultural levers in shifting, you know, how people think about aging and think about how they live their life on a, on a daily basis. And I think his work is really profound. And the work that he also does with cities, like now he goes to cities and he helps them become Blue Zone certified. And what that means is they change their infrastructure and their physical environment to be conducive to healthier lifestyle habits and the downstream impact of that being healthier citizens, lower you know, healthcare costs, et cetera, and just a generally happier population. And I think that that is a great act of service. And so I just, I can't say enough good things about what an amazing human being he is. Oh, can you tell him next time you talk to him that we, we bought our new house um, on the basis of what he said? <laughs> and that's the truth. Oh, good. Because he said they come top of his list every time, walkability and bikeability. And that's why we bought the house mm -hmm. we live in now. Do you remember the subject of your first podcast this year and you're not allowed to look? The first podcast this year? Yeah. Of uh, the initial, like my first podcast episode of 2020? Yep. I think it was with Chad Wright, the Navy SEAL, if I remember correctly. Correct. True? You win the car. Yeah, yeah. Um, because he talked about a similar thing, didn't he? You know, was, he has a different take on not quitting and it's all about don't articulate, don't give, literally don't say whatever it is you don't want to do out loud because you've just given yourself permission to let it happen. Right. His whole thing is don't give pain a voice. That's his mantra. Um, and then his other thing is like, don't die in the chair, meaning, you know, you don't, you, you don't want to be caught sitting down, like always be moving forward. And, you know, to the extent that you can turn off the thinking brain and mute out all of that, um, you know, noise in your mind that's telling you to quit, that's compelling you to stop, that's throwing these arguments at you that, you know, you don't need to keep going. Like if you can mute that out, then you've got a chance for manifesting what it is that, that, that you're trying to achieve. That podcast was so interesting for me because I actually listened to it during the last marathon that we partook in, which was the virtual London marathon a couple of weeks ago now because it was postponed. And then we were invited to do it mm. wherever we were, you know, on the day, the postponed date, which was October the 3rd this year. And so I listened to you and Chad 
Um, and I, I never listen to podcasts when I'm running, ever, you know. But this was a much more leisurely marathon. You know, the training had waned a little bit and we'd designed our own route. And uh, once again, it was up from our house, up river, past Russell's house, a bit further on, turn around, come back home again. 26.2 miles, there you go. We actually stopped, stopped at a coffee shop and had some cake and a coffee as, as our... as our Because it was so cool. I mean, that's the way you should do it now and again. You know, it's yeah. fun. But um, yeah. listening to Chad... And you, um, one of the because you always have a hard ass on, don't you? On the first, you try and have a hard ass on on the first podcast of a new year. I try to, yeah, yeah. I had David Goggins on the year before, and I was like, well, that was such a smash hit. Like, how do we kick off 2020 correct? I can't have David on again. Like, but who can I get? And Jesse Itzler uh, called me up, and he's like, hey man, I got this guy. You got to have him on your show. He's unbelievable. He's like, he's become like my new guru like he's younger than me but this is the wisest you know he's like he's so crazy wise and he's from like the woods in the middle of nowhere in georgia and he just has this you know laconic you know southern drawl and easy way about him but everything that comes out of his mouth is like unreal like you got to meet this guy and i was like all right jesse i trust you and the guy came in and and sure enough you know is like he's like this He's like this Yoda-like figure living in, you know, living in a in, in out in the country. You know, I don't even know how Jesse found him. But what's different about Chad versus what you might expect from a Navy SEAL is there is like a soulful quietness to that guy. That's you know, there's a peacefulness to him. Um, he's not like this aggressive alpha in his personality. Like he's much more um, low key. And I think that that makes his message even more powerful. Yeah, we used to have a show, a TV show here called What's My Line? And somebody would come on and you'd have to guess what they did for a living. And had he appeared, they'd still be guessing now because you'd never guess he was a Navy SEAL. No. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's so it's true. So true. <laughs> you know, you think he's maybe a lay preacher, you know, who helps old ladies out with their flower ranging yeah. on a Thursday. But he's a killer. I know. I know it's crazy, and then every once in a while on his Instagram, he'll shoot, he'll show some photos of him from when he was on. Like, I think he did, you know, he did some heavy security detail, so he's got like the Secret Service suit on and the whole thing with a pre beard, and he's unrecognizable compared to what he looks yeah. like now. Yeah, hang on, hang on, Rich. When you say he did some security detail, he 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 was a bodyguard for President Obama. Yeah, that's correct. Right. That's, right. <laughs> that's that's some security. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. I forgot about that. That was Rich Roll. He, uh, the Rich Roll podcast, my favorite podcast in the world by many, many thousands of country miles. Now, one of our earlier How to Wow standout episodes was episode 14, starring the great and powerful and very, very funny and extremely nice Romesh Ranganathan. Had we known how many instant hits this was going to get, we'd have gone for a much bigger sponsorship deal, let me tell you. But hey, you live and you learn, don't you? As Ramesh recounts more than once in his brilliant 2020 memoir, Straight Out of Crawley, which is one of the things he joined us to talk about. I saw a side of my dad that I'd never seen before when, when we had kids. He just became... Yeah, I just thought I just he would just became very very sort of gushy and lovey dovey. And how did that make you feel? It was great. I mean, I loved it. I mean, I, I'm really grateful that I got to see that because he was great with us as well. But he was away a lot and stuff. And 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 
Uh, and so when we had our first child and I saw how he was around him, I sort of thought, I've, I've not seen my dad like this before. It was, it was, it was amazing, man. It was really good. See, because we had a chat the other day and, um, you know, I say, you know, I get it. I get it. You talked about your discomfort around money mm. and then, you know, you, you spend a few, a few quid on your family uh, because you really, really want to. But then because of your own paranoia, you start you start saying how everything, how much everything costs to your family whilst they're spending it. And that was all a bit awkward. And I said, I get it. I get it because I'm from where you're from. But of course, I forgot, you know, great review of your, of your uh, memoir, Straight Out of Crawley. Uh, one of the great reviews was, you know, richest, richest to to rags to riches yeah because you were quite posh for a while yeah i was i mean it started off all very idyllic and uh you know i was at private school and um dad was doing well it was all good you know it, it was it was great actually and then just in a very short period of time uh, it all got turned upside down and so it was uh it just felt very very quick it's a weird one because i know that in the grand scheme of things what happened with us isn't that you know, isn't really bad, and people go through a lot worse than that. It felt apocalyptic at the time. You know, you sort of have this thing where you think your you think your parents' marriage is infallible, you think their financial situation is infallible, and you think that your life is set. You know, this is what my childhood is, and then in the course of a year, maybe less than that, all of that sort of went away. You know, my the house got repossessed. Uh, my mum found out that my you know my dad was uh, had been having this ongoing relationship with this other woman. And and then he went to prison, and that happened all very very quickly. And so then you're in, a, then we're we're staying in a bed and breakfast, like my brother, my mum, and myself all in one room, with my dad in prison. I mean that it just felt it felt I, I, I can't even explain how it felt. It felt it was mad. How, how old were you at the time? So that must have been I was like twelve, thirteen, something like that. Right, because kids are you know they are quite myopic, aren't they? You know mm. they don't really they might know what's going on around them or know that they could know, but don't necessarily feel like they want to know. Yeah. But you weren't. So I mean, it's don't get me wrong, it was a quantum shift. Yeah. But nevertheless, you were still mind you twelve, thirteen. Maybe if you'd have been a bit younger, yeah, would have been less traumatic or I think experiential so, for you. I, I think so. It's just that kind of age where. You're sort of aware of that sort of stuff, and and also is that it was you're in denial about it as well. I was really in denial about my dad not loving or feeling like my dad didn't love my mum. That that was the biggest uh, shock for me, and I, and I remember for a long time, not really fair on my mum, but I I su survived under the assumption that my mum was imagining it or she'd got it wrong, and then I and I thought that for a long time, and I, and, and actually it made me all my side with my dad because I was thinking, I don't know why mum keeps saying this, you know, yes, he's friendly with that woman, but nothing's going on. You know, that's what I was sort of running in my head. And then one day he, I don't think he realised it because he didn't know that I sort of was, 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 was sort of um, pretending to myself that he hadn't done anything. Then one day he said he admitted it. It wasn't even an admission. He just said it in a very matter of fact way. And he didn't know that, but it, shat it shattered me. Like I was just like, oh my God, so all of this is true. It was, it was a horrible, horrible moment. So you were shattered then at the time or retrospectively, reflectively? No, at the time, I remember, I remember I was sat in the back of the car. My dad was in the front having an argument with my mum. And I can't remember the exact words he used, but he said something that sort of confirmed that, you know, he'd been sleeping with this woman. And it, it was at that point that I was like, oh shit, this is real. This actually, he has been having a relationship with this woman. And then what that does is that that now means that everything my mum said was true. So my mum was telling me that he'd been wanting to set up with this other woman and leave my mum and us in a house somewhere so he'd go off and live another, you know, all of that. So you sort of, 
So that everything my mama said has been true. So then you sort of retrospectively go, oh, that must have been, that's true then, that's true. So he was wanting to go and go somewhere else. So, you know, you sort of have, you, you process all of that. So did that make you more concrete with your mum then? Yeah, I mean, yes, 100%. And then also the fact that I was seeing my mum, you know, cry herself to sleep a lot. And she, like, you know, she went through a lot. She, she took, she, she got a job for the first time. She was doing cleaning jobs and stuff like that to just to make ends meet and was single-handedly bringing my brother and myself up, that has stayed with me. You know, I would do anything for her, you know, and, and I know a lot of people say that about their mum, but she's like a, one of my heroes, you know, for, for what she went through and what she did. I'll never forget that. And was it this trauma, Ramesh, that drove you to tell racist jokes as a small child at Butlins? <laughs> That's not fair, it's Pontins. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, it might was, it, was it Pontins? It was Pontins. See, yeah. Pontins was always the posh version of Butlins in our house because we went to Butlins and we aspired to go to Pontins. Is that true? I thought it was the other way around. Well, I, no, it, maybe it's whichever way around it isn't for you. It's the opposite. Right. But anyway, so so when was that pre your dad, mum and dad pre, breaking that was, that was pre. I was like eight or nine or something. And I was really into stand-up. I was really into comedy in general. And um, there was a talent contest at Pontins and I entered as a stand-up. And I wrote, I think I wrote a couple of my own jokes. I decided to deliver it all in an accent because I thought it'd give me, it's funnier. And um, I wrote one or two of my own jokes, but the rest of the jokes I took from a joke book uh, called three, The 3001 Jokes. And a lot of those jokes were just really anti, it was just about Irish people being stupid. I didn't think anything of it. I just thought it was funny. And so I started doing this material. And then, uh, and then when I look back and I realise I've done, I mean, now I'm talking to you, it was a horrendously racist set. I, I, I don't stand by it, the content of it. No, of course you don't. <laughs> by the I want to be absolutely crystal clear. This is clear not news that. night. I want to be absolutely yeah. crystal clear. I want distance, to distance myself from what happened at Pontins. Your, your racist eight year old, <laughs> megalomanic, yeah. egomaniac, fame seeking stand up routine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How long did it last for? Uh, what, the racism? Yes. <laughs> the routine, you idiot. Uh, the routine, maybe like five, ten minutes, something like that. Did you learn the jokes or did you read them out of the book? No, I read, I learned them, I learned them, I learned them. Right. So uh, I'd memorised it. But the thing is, I'd read that book backwards. I mean, I knew all of the jokes off by heart, so I just picked my favourite ones uh, and then delivered it in a set. And then actually, weirdly, somebody, somebody that my mum and dad had made friends with uh, at Pontins, they were sat at this table and... I finished the competition and I went and sat down with them. And one of the guys said, uh, oh, I'm Irish. Did you know that, Ramesh? And uh, <laughs> it was my first sort of taste of kind of seeing the aftermath of, of saying something offensive on stage. Uh, and you remember it. What did you say to him? What did he want to say? What was the point of this, of him saying that to he you? He was laughing, as he said. It wasn't... It wasn't uh, was, was he audibly Irish? No. No, he oh, wasn't. So you might, you might have been making it up. He might have been, just to make just me feel, feel uncomfortable, yeah. How would you feel if I did some anti-Sri Lankan stuff, eh, little boy? <laughs> would you like that? Um, but I remember, yeah, he was saying it in a funny way. But, um, but yeah, now I think about it, I probably shouldn't have done that. But, but although the, I won. But those talent competitions, yeah, but there are only three, three <laughs> people, because I've read the book. Uh, two girls, two, you and two girls, yeah? Yeah, okay. correct. <laughs> what, what did they do? What were you up against? I, I think one of them sang a song and another one played a kazoo, I think, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and you said about the kazoo, at least it was all, all her own material. Yes, true, absolutely right, yeah. But I, I wonder if it was, or she was just really bad on the kazoo. 
Maybe, maybe it was unrecognisable. Maybe she was she was doing Michael Jackson. Or something. But those holiday camp talent competitions, I mean, they're so gorgeous. You know, they're so gorgeous. And at Ponzi, you had the blue coats, and at Butlins, you had the red coats. And I just thought the red coats were like the greatest people. Oh ever. my! Ever so so good. It's uh, like yeah. superstars. Yeah, so much so that we we we've taken our children to Butlins like loads because of that. Because of my memories of having, it felt like when I look back on that, we only went to Pontins once. Yeah. When I look back on that week, it just, it's magical. Yeah, totally. It is just incredible. And then you go to Butlins, and 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 I sort of see it through my my kid. You know, there's so much stuff laid on for kids. It's just an it's just a feast for them, like activities and stuff. It's a, it's an amazing thing. I hope. That they get from that, what I got from Pontus and Mate. I remember like crying when we were going. I was going to say, buckets of tears oh. on the Friday night, yeah, saying yeah. goodbye to all your mates. It was like because it's a miniature version of life. Yeah, up, it's mate, like this is totally. the end. This yeah. is it. This is Butlins, Butlins and Pontins have been designed by some kind of master or mistress of the universe to get kids ready for death. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that's. What I've I never, I've never thought about it like that. Yeah. But yeah, and, and it's that thing of like, I remember my mum going, we'll come back, don't worry, we'll come back. And you think, well, and even as a kid, you think, well, it might not be the same people. My mates aren't going to be that I've made this week. Do you know what I mean? And also, I don't know if I believe you. And I was right not to trust her because we never went back. And it's a bit like a kid version of an affair. These are brand new mates. You've got no baggage with yeah, them. They're yeah. like the best mates ever. You, yeah. don't, you don't have to work this relationship out. No, and also, the other thing is, it's a reset button on people's perceptions of you. You know, you have this, you know, you have this thing at school. This is where who I am. Yeah, yeah, I can be whoever I want. Yes, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> How good was that show, by the way? Yeah, great. great. One of the best. Did you watch the Cadini version? No, I didn't watch that. No. Kat came in the other day for a podcast. I didn't. Right. I only when she said could I remember her hosting it. Yeah. And it's because she hosted that that she got um, the big show in, in America. That she oh, was that right? She's sort of still doing. She did it for 19, yeah. 19 seasons for a show. Wow. That is big deal, mm. huge deal. Mm. My mum, you know, because Butlins for us was the posh holiday, you know, and I'm not pleading poverty here, but it really was because mm. it's all inclusive and it, you know we went for a week once, then we went for a fortnight. God, you know, I've never we've never done a fortnight. Did it did it stand up so far? Well, as a kid, yeah, you just yeah. go there for the rest of your life. <laughs> no, seriously, forget getting on a plane and going to Disney. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. This is not rose tinted spectacles. Yeah, yeah. This was this was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going yeah. to Butlins was amazing, you know. Um, you know, an ex RAF camp by the sea, you know. But there was there was a pecking order of Butlins as well, yeah. Because there was we went to Filey quite a lot, and uh, we went to Patheli. Patheli was sort of one up from Filey because it had a monorail. <laughs> oh, but then there was Great Yarmouth, which we never got to. Yeah, you know, and it was like, and then the brochure, you know, the the Butlins brochure, the better. The Butlins would be the more pages it was given. In yeah. my eyes, at least, that's what I was seeing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But but Pontins was a whole different world. Yeah, it was. Well, I, I thought I, I'd always thought that Pontins was the 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 worst. Not the worst. I don't mean worst. How can it be worse? Yeah, it was the amazing. Poor, the poor cousin. The poor cousin. Yeah, I I thought it was. But hence why we took our family to Butlins. I was like, Lisa, we're taking our kids to Butlins, and uh, it's still amazing. And like you know, like for, as an adult. You're sort of walking around going, well, it's it's fine, but you can see for the kids, it's like they just our kids yeah, just lose their minds. Well, you know, you and I, we met at this posh hotel once. Um, obviously, we've met before, but I'm just saying we re met at this posh hotel once. Yeah. And one of the reasons the hotel we were at 
used yeah. used to used to not allow kids. Is that right? Yeah, five six years before, no kids allowed, and then it was sold, and the new owners had kids, and right. so they said. Okay, well, kids are now allowed. And anyway, so, yeah, it was a bit of an issue for a while, a few mm. bumps in the road. And then they made it bigger, and there were more kids. And then suddenly it became this really kid-friendly hotel. And one of the things that you know, because you've been there and I know because I've been there, is that the, one of the most successful things about that is the kids' club. Because the kids' club is 10 till 12 in the morning. So you get them for breakfast. It's great. You have the family time, face mm. time. And then um, I think it's 10.30 to 12.30. And then the pool's open for them as well. So mm. breakfast, pool open for the kids. Then kids' club, 10.30 to 12.30. And then kids' club again, 2.30 to 4.30, right? Because they're taking a, a, a page, a leaf out of the book of the playbook of Butlins. This is, this is just a very, very posh, very, very brief Butlins going on yeah, here. Yeah, I, 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 we didn't think about Kids Club, actually, before we went to the hotel because we, we went away thinking we're going to have the kids with us the whole time and, and see what they do. We, we hadn't thought about Kids Club. And it was them that said, well, we said, do you want to check out the Kids Club? And it was amazing because it's one of those rare things where they're having a great time. Yeah. And you're also having a great time. It's always is uh, you normally have to compromise on that, don't you? Either the kids have an amazing time, or you do, yeah. and never the twain shall meet, or whatever. At, but at that hotel, it was great. We all had an amazing time. It was brilliant. Because Johnny Vegas is a big fan of Butlins as well. Is he massive? Are you are you friends with Johnny? I'm not friends with him, but I love him. I think he's amazing. Right. Okay. I read his book. You've met him. A couple I've times. met him a few you times. Won't. We've done Cat Stuff's Countdown. Yeah. Have you have you performed at Butlins since obviously since the racist eight year old period? No, no. The, my last gig <laughs> at a holiday camp was deeply racist. Because they have these weekenders, don't they? Yeah, and 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 they're um they're they're either really good gigs or terrifying. Apparently, is what I've been told by mates that have done them. How are they terrifying? Because. You know, you go and do a gig and, and, you know, if the parents are on a booze up, you know, there's a bit of release there. And I so see. They c it can be a bit difficult to ride. go either way. Yeah. You are, and even when they're going well, mm. you have gigs where they're going well and they're really laughing, but you feel like you're a hair's breadth away of this, of, of this getting away from you. Right. And that's what those are like. Ooh, yeah. What's that like as a comedian? It's, it's, it's exciting because you think if I can keep it right here, I'm, I'm going to have a brilliant show. How do you do that? It's it's a lot of it's it's lots of little decisions during the you know about how to pitch the material how As far to push it telling one routine thinking about the next one yeah and thinking about your timing on it and thinking about if you're going to go into the crowd or not because often say for example you know a, a, a common thing is if if a gig is uh, if a crowd is quiet or a bit sort of tame mm. you can sometimes go into the crowd to give them a bit of a lift or whatever and sort of manage the energy that way well, actually like Bono might. Not no, not physically. Going, oh, but so you know, you might you might sort of just start interacting with them or whatever. Oh, I see. And sort of doing a bit of riffing and that sort of excitement of of feeling like this is happening in the room just for us can sort of lift the energy. Um, but when you're doing a gig where you're right on the edge of that, you can do that because they they start they'll start shouting out when when the energy's like that. Occasionally they'll shout out, but they're not even heckling. They're just just excited and shout something out. And then your decision about how to manage that can make or break the gig. You, you either deal with that very quickly, get a laugh and move on, or you can have a bit of fun with it. But if you have too much fun with it, the rest of the crowd suddenly get the signal that this is an interactive gig and then, and then you're done. It's over. 
Yep, absolutely. You are done and it is over. I love Ramesh. Who doesn't? I don't know anyone. There's nothing not to like. That said, if you are aware of anyone that begs to differ, I suggest you unfriend them immediately, but not before pointing them directly and uttering these words. That's projection. That is your problem. It's primarily with yourself, pal. You need a healthy, helpful, handy dose of urgent introspection and a daily gratitude practice, but I've already given you too much of my valuable time. Next, on this How to Wow Best Of, we defer to the Right Honourable Dame Emma Thompson, who I A, love, B, respect, C, admire, and D, envy the sheer panache and effortlessness with which she rocks a pair of old-school dungarees, which is precisely what she was wearing the day she invited myself and that international man of mystery, the frothy coffee man, into her North London abode for a good old chinwag. All right. It wasn't actually her house, but it was opposite her actual house. And I did get to meet her mum and her adopted son whilst they shared a bowl of lunchtime soup. Well, they didn't share a bowl. They had a bowl each. But anyway, um, I'll take that as confirmation bias that she quite likes me as a human being. That's Dame Emma Thompson. I was there for dinner with Rafe Fines, um, and... It was her house was just extraordinary because every room had been done in um in a different style and obviously very expensively. So I'm going to each room and thinking I could literally buy a house, a whole house with what's in this room. Um, but more alarmingly or perhaps even interestingly, I had to cook over the road opposite. I had to cook a meal for her and Robert De Niro on the same night. So they came over for dinner on the same night and um, I just got, got, I thought I'd got everything all sorted and I, I was having a shower and I came downstairs and I was married to Ken at the time because he was doing Frankenstein with um, Bob and um, and I had my hair in a towel and I was still, I was running around and then there was this doorbell thing and I opened the door and Barbara was getting out of the car and she said, is that a towel you have on your head? I said, yeah. Um, uh, and she arrived and I realised I hadn't put the fucking dinner in the oven. I hadn't put it into the oven. So I had to put, I suddenly thought, Jesus Christ. <sighs> Hello, Barbara. <laughs> Would you like a glass of... <laughs> and I put the dinner in the oven, of course. By the time Bob had got here with his entourage, it was Barbara was on her own, um, Ken and I were both absolutely plastered. And then Bob got a, he got a, a cigar out and started to smoke it. And Barbara was sitting next to me. She said, see, is, is he going to smoke that in here? I th and I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? I can't say. Robert, could you turn your cigar out? Because Barbara's not having it. Um, uh, I, and I just remember being so, so drunk by the end of the night. I, I think I passed out on the sofa by the time they'd, they'd both gone. I, all I can say is never have two legends over on the same night. Just don't. For anybody listening, just bear that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thing. What that's a strange one, isn't it? When you start, when you think, when you think, if you're the one holding the dinner party, it's a good idea to start drinking early. That's just such a no. Don't ever. That's such a schoolgirl, schoolboy error, isn't it? Yeah, that's and you really, start to sweat yeah, in your mouth. The more you drink, the drier your mouth gets. What's the fuck's that about? No, it's just not good. No. Um, so, so how long was the dinner? I know, I've got no idea. I was scooping me. I was pissed before it started. I've got no idea. Oh, the hangover took, was about two weeks long. And when, you, sure. when you're around such legends, and you, you can hold your own, um, you know, mm. in a storytelling competition, but, you know, 
do, do you choose your moment? Does it come naturally to you? By the time you were doing that, you and Ken, you, you you're having this dinner party with Bob and Babs. Um, was it all? Was it all quite? Was it the new normal? No, not at all. Never was normal. It's never been normal. I've never found it normal. Any of it. I mean, perhaps that's a good thing. You know, but I mean, uh, it's still not normal. So I don't, I don't, um, don't really live in that world. I think you have to really have kind of grown up there in some way. Los Angeles in particular, that's a whole other thing. And I didn't even get visit Los Angeles till I was 30. You know, I was, and I was like a sort of geography teacher, really. Let loose amongst these. What do you mean by that? Well, I was just sort of very, you know, kind of blue stocking, book reading person who felt rather plain and not at all um, able to to inhabit the kinds of personality that you know I was surrounded by so it was very it was a very strange and I mean I enjoyed it very much but I was very much an outsider or I felt myself to be I've always been always enjoyed being a visitor there and everyone was, has always been so lovely uh, lady came on this morning she's written a book about AI for girls mm. um, and she said the only thing wrong with it uh, not enough people of colour and not enough women in that film and I thought bloody hell of course well, because there are no people no. of colour or women in Silicon Valley. I know. That's so, the so, point. Well, a whole a chapter in her book um, is about gender uh, gender data, which is as as big a problem as every other gender issue. Oh yeah, and it's it's. Well, I mean, the stories from Silicon Valley are absolutely unbelievable. I mean, the sex parties. Have you heard about those? No. So. In Silicon Valley, everyone's very kind of loose and cool. And when you arrive and you're a woman, you're expected this to take part in the sort of loose, cool atmos atmosphere and everybody then, oh, and suddenly oh, it turns into the sex party that if you don't take part in, you're not loose and cool and part of the thing. And if you don't take part in it, then you don't get the... I mean, it's actually the casting couch exists in Silicon Valley as we speak because it's geeks. It's geeks who never thought they would get the girl. And and suddenly they're so powerful, and so and they're all white and they're all male. Because you've had, I mean, you've talked about well, very openly about the John Lester issue, haven't you? Mm. Which we could talk about now. We we don't have to talk about now. Yeah, whatever you want. So just just for people who don't know about what we're talking about, speak to that for a second. Um, well, it was just after the Me Too movement had really started, and um, uh. I was about to start on doing a voice on an animated movie with a wonderful director, and I can't remember any names of anything, so don't even, because I'm not prepped for that, so I can't remember. And like I say, I forget a lot. You don't care anymore. And it's past. But um, this studio had just appointed John Lasseter, who was clearly somebody who had a great difficulty controlling his behaviour towards women. Um, and... I just thought, isn't there a point at which if you're an organisation with a great deal of money and, and choice about who you wished at your helm, is there not a point at which you say, do you know what, that person, good though they are, has this reputation, it's, it's not the moment 
to take that person. He says he wants to change. Perhaps we should leave him to do that for a few years. And then we could talk to him about things. John Lassiter may wish to change his behaviour. I'm, I, I haven't seen him, so I don't know. But um, it was literally, there was a town hall where they call those, they call those things town halls where everybody goes in and, and they were all saying, well, he, he, he's anything you wish to say. Well, anything you wish to say about your boss and the company you work for in this open environment, that's, nobody's going to say anything because this is all about power. So just choose someone who you know is not going to behave like that. It's not rocket science. It's just human resources. It was so stupid and and also insensitive and almost like an absolute smack, a backhander to all of those women who'd been brave enough to come out and say, you know, we felt me up with a lift or he went. All of this casual stuff that Laura Bates has written so brilliantly about and has again brought out a new book about misogyny on the web, on the dark web, which is <laughs> terrifying. I, I just thought, no, I can't. I can't work for this company because they're not listening and they're not reading the room. And at some point or other, you've just got to say no. And then you hear from people who are working in areas that aren't as spotlit, who feel you know, vindicated and feel stronger and better for it. So it's a good move to make to stand up to things even if it means you walking away from a project that you love. When did you first start standing up to things and what was the first thing you were active about? Feminism. When I was 19, I first read an extraordinary feminist literary criticism, book of literary criticism. It's called The Mad Woman in the Attic and it's, it's Gilbert and Gubar is the, are the names of the authors, two women. And... I'd been reading a lot of 19th century Victorian literature, which I loved. I've always loved Jane Austen, George Eliot, you know, oh, just loved them and um, the Brontes, etc. And I was suddenly introduced to a whole other way of thinking about these books. And I realised that all the m white male critics that I'd been reading weren't necessarily right or <laughs> even understanding of what these women were writing and that was a complete revelation to me and as I got into that and then started to read about about women about about the history of women which there isn't any obviously because we've been ignored but um I just started to get so involved with it and so angry and also coming up against it myself a lot of course being a woman who wanted to be a comedian which was really hard and I was lucky I was a woman of white privilege I mean not privilege in the sense of an aristocratic family or anything not in any sense that but at least I, I was white that was a help um and <laughs> just I was so angry I remember being asked by um it was a bloke who was running the National Theatre at the time. And he was all dressed in black with a black polo neck and his office was painted black and his desk was black and everything. He just looked like a head floating in the office because everything around him was black. And um, it was a gag, really. And um, 
he said, why haven't you come to us to be directed? I've never forgotten that. I said, because I didn't want any fucking men telling me what to do. It came out of me like a sort of arrow from my heart. And he said, oh, okay. <laughs> and I never went. All right, then. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. Yeah. I never went. And I found a lot of the... I mean, there were some extraordinarily wonderful men at that time. It was Humphrey Barclay, who has done so much for comedy of colour, anyone of colour in comedy owes Humphrey a lot because he was one of the first people ever to put on any comedy series that were even about black lives in Britain, you know. And he also um, really uh, championed women as well. Me too. And I owe him a lot. And I'd rather think about, I'd rather think about men like him than the obvious really, because the obvious is still there. You can just walk out and you'll find it. You'll find it at the BBC still. You'll find it at radio everywhere. It's still all there. The, and there it is, you know, white male privilege, which is, after all, just as niche as anything else, is still there. Very much so, and very much so in the arts. So so in the footlights, you, you trailblazed there as well because you were the first female vice president, president? Yeah, I was vice president. Jan Ravens was president for a bit. Right. Um, um, I was vice president, I think, oh, when no, Hugh the, was president. Sorry, you were the first female to be um, welcomed into the sketch, comedy sketch side of things. No, they no. I mean, I think, I think they'd had women... Well, the first time the Footlights had women was in something like 1927 right. when there were only about three girls at Cambridge. Anyway, I don't know what happened there. But anyway, the following year, the review was called No More Women. Because as Sandy Toxvig and I discovered, because we did the first all-female review called Woman's Hour there, um, actually it was very very hard to find a woman who was funny. It wasn't... It was hard to find at Cambridge. You know, think of the effort that women had to make just to get to Cambridge in the first place. Yeah. You know, I mean, massive. Yeah. Massive. So it, it's not going to... It wasn't going to draw the kind of... The jokers. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't going to draw the, the people attracted to the lighter side of life. You know, I mean, my, my corridor was just natural historians who all... It was like, it was like living in a sort of burrow... Um, with little kind of rodenty people who had little... I mean, I don't mean to look at, but just their habits. And um, uh, uh, and they all had little fluffy slippers, I remember. And I was the only one who had a fella uh, come to visit and Hugh would come to visit and it, you'd hear the, the sound of the doors slamming on the corridor like bullet shots as soon as this massive rower turned up on the corridor. They've demolished that building now, sadly, otherwise I could show you. You forget he was a rower, strapping young man. Yeah, he that was his thing. He got into, oh God, I can't remember his college, Selwyn, um, and he was, he was a rowing blue, an athlete, you know, extraordinary. But I mean, for the you know, in their defence, not that they need to be defended, but the historians, um, the students of history, that was their joy, wasn't it? So they didn't feel like so they exactly. needed the comedy. So no. it's about joy, isn't it? Yeah. What do you want? I mean, good grief! It, it exactly. I discovered comedy or my love of performing comedy when I was very, very young, um, way before university. 
I was I used to do these funny little acting classes with um, um, oh, a wonderful woman called Sheila Sachs, who's dead now, but she did these classes for kids in her front room. And I was quite shy and I'd been a bit bullied at primary school because I had a posh accent and a plait and I was fat. Anyway, um, I went to Sheila's classes and she just did these amazing exercises. And I loved it, I absolutely loved it. And she put on a show every year. And one year I got to do a monologue by the jazz musician George Melly. And it was about how... It was based on Lenny Bruce's How to Relax Your Coloured Friends at Parties. And it was about a woman who's absolutely over the moon because there's a black man at her party. And it's about a Hampstead hostess. Who's, who's, can you imagine? I was 13, I think, 13 years old. And what the, but the thing was, I knew it was, it was a great piece of writing and we did versions of that for years afterwards. I remember Jan doing it. I mean, you forget, you forget how written into our culture was misogyny and racism. I mean, it was just part of the world in such a sort of normal way. And Melly'd seen it, and obviously Lenny Bruce was a bit genius on that score. But I remember the feeling of making people laugh. And it was just... It was just such a buzz. Dame Emma Thompson, for the whole of that chat, you need to pay a visit to the How To Our podcast archive and select episode 19 for Sooth. Now, I don't know about you. How would I? How could I? But I fancy Rick Astley. Next on How To Our Pick of the Pods 2020, you didn't think I was just going to say, I fancy Rick Astley and leave it there, did you? <laughs> Muppet. I mean... I could have done, I suppose. It's free world. But the fact is, I don't actually fancy Rick Astley from a pleasures of the flesh point of view. But I definitely fancy him on most other levels. In fact, I might venture as far as to say I genuinely love him. Rick has been so supportive of many of our fundraisers over the years. And not only has he never asked to be paid, not a single penny for his time and effort, but has always paid his own expenses himself, including all those of his band. How nice is that? And ensuring the various charities we support receive the most financial help possible where he is concerned. Thank you, Rick. I love you and fancy certain aspects of you. And therefore, because he's such a nice dude, it came as little surprise to me when he suggested for our How To Our podcast chat, I go over to his place for a cup of tea and a biggie in his recording studio in his back garden. He really is an extremely decent and civil human being. And he starred in said episode nine, way back in 1927, I think it was, one minute after the podcast had been invented by Winston Churchill on the back of a five-cigar bender. Yeah, I did do a few things. I did do a couple of things. I, one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to try and be a songwriter producer. So I had a studio built in Fulham, and it, it was amazing that place actually. It was weird because it was just at the end. I had a two-inch tape machine and a proper desk that you actually plugged things into and all of that. And I had learned a bit at, at you know Pete's place, Waterman's place, not a lot really, but I'd learned bits, um, and I kind of wanted. I just wanted my own studio, really. So I, so I had this place uh, put together. It was really gorgeous. It was great. And then I started to, you know, try and sort of get some things together uh, to be able to approach uh, record labels and, and whatever and say, look, I've written these things. I've done these tracks. Are you interested? But for one, I don't think I was really ready to do it um, skills-wise. And for two, I actually find it quite hard writing a song for someone else. If I'm going to sing it, 
I can pitch it at myself and maybe find something that works for me to do. And whether I can do that for other people, I don't know. Um, and a few of my friends are songwriters and, and were kind of just finding their feet at that time. And they'd come around and use the studio and I'd lend it to them and stuff. And um, so anyway, so I had that studio for quite a while, quite a few years. It became a bit of a hangout place for friends to come and just, you know, hang out and do stuff. And like I say, I lent it to people. Um, but I kind of gave up on the idea. But one thing that kind of a crazy thing that happened was um, a friend of mine sent some songs to an A&R guy in Germany at, at one of the labels in Polydor, I think it was. And um, this guy got in touch with me. Uh, he was still a friend to today, actually, because he said, oh, I want to come over and see. And I'm like, OK. I thought, well, that's a great start, actually. If I get some songs cut by a German artist, that could be really cool, singing in English. And yeah, great. OK. So he came over and he basically said, I want you to do them. <laughs> Cut a long story short, I made a record for Polydor in Germany. Didn't release it anywhere else. I said, I'll do it, but you can't release it anywhere outside of Germany. And I didn't really enjoy the process. I liked making the music, but I didn't enjoy the process of of trying to go through those hoops again, if I'm honest. So Promotion and things. Yeah, everything, yeah. Interviews. Just, just all of it. And just, I think time had moved on. I felt really old. I remember going to do this TV show and, and uh, Westlife were on it. And I just felt like a granddad. I was probably like 30-something, but I felt like I felt ancient. Can we just talk about Peter Kay? Yeah, absolutely. Right. For sure. How much was Peter Kay asking you to go on tour with an, an open up on that massive tour he did? Um, how much was that? How much part did that play in you coming back again? I think it's definitely, I think all, all of these, all there's a bunch of things, some big like that, massive like that, and some small that kind of made me comfortable enough to say, I want to, be gigging again properly just give us three of those okay well the first time i ever sang my old songs again um i'd had offers to go and do gigs in different places and i'd always said no obviously the uk but different parts of the world and it was really flattering to be offered but i just thought no, i don't do that anymore and, this is, and the rewind festival started and the, the yeah but this is before that right okay before that okay. so um our daughter amelia was 14 15 and um uh I had this offer to go to Japan. And I'm sort of smiling now, actually, because I'm just laughing about it. But I'd had this offer to go to Japan. And um, Lena, my wife, and our daughter Amelia really wanted to go to Japan. They'd, ne they'd never been. And I'd been a few times. And our daughters wanted to study art even then and everything. So everything Japanese she was really interested in. And so I said yes. And I just thought, oh, we'll go. It's fine. You know, we'll I'll do the three or four gigs and I'll do them and I'll, that'll be it. I'll never do it again, but that'll be fine, you know. You're 40-something at this time? Uh, this, this is uh, 13, 12, 13 years ago, actually. Right. Yeah, so it's a while ago now, actually. So anyway, we get to Japan. Um, we had a weird journey to get to Japan, actually, but there you go. It's a long story. Um, I can get into that another time. Oh, I'm going to get into it. I'm going to get into it. Um, my wife, Lena, is her real job. She manages me, actually, but her real job is she's a film producer and she'd been nominated for a short film Oscar. Uh, her and Sean Ellis, the guy that, that directed it. So so they went to the Oscars and we did as well. I'd said yes to the gigs before that, but it meant that we went to the Oscars in, in obviously, Los Angeles, red carpet, the whole bit, everything. And then I got on a plane to Tokyo from Los Angeles to go and do these gigs and, and the girls came a couple of days later um to sing those songs after all these years so it's more showbiz than that all was, of a sudden it was a mad it, yeah honestly it was like from sort of like me jet washing me wheelie bins to sort of just the maddest sort of couple of weeks you can imagine 
It's exciting. It was, and it was kind of otherworldly, and it was crazy, and also because it was Japan, and I always liked going to Japan because it was just mad. I did commercials there and everything. We shot them actually around different parts of the world, but, you know, a bit like the Lost in Translation film. It's say. too close to reality. For, for Honestly, when Lena and I saw that film, we, we, we our jaws were on the floor. I can't believe you did ads, Rick. I, 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 well, I, I did a soft, a soft drink commercial. I love the fact you yeah. did this. This yeah, is yeah. so unlike yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, well... I remember when it happened, they kind of said, um, you know, we want, want you to do this commercial for Japan. And I'm like, well, I don't really do that. Who, who would do that? So they sent us this VHS, as it was at the time, with every major artist you can imagine doing a commercial for, like, whiskey or, or whatever it was, you know. And I'm talking, like, you know, Tina Turner, Sting, the biggest artist in the world at the time. And I just went, oh, okay, then. <laughs> so we shot four commercials. Anyway, so I, I digress. So, so I'm back in Japan. And I actually said when I went out in front of the audience, I said, "Right, who's ready for the for the you know biggest biggest karaoke in Tokyo tonight?" Because that's what it felt like. I hadn't sung those songs for years, but I would say, I'd say five minutes into it, I was thinking, "So tell me again why you haven't done this." It was really weird, really strange, and I think it was almost a bit like anybody can do in any any walk of life in any kind of scenario where you can open a door and go, "Why have I never done this before?" And I think going to Japan was a, a really good way of doing it because I was so jet-lagged. We'd had this freaky few days. It really was mad. And we stayed up all night after the, after the Oscars, actually. And we got back from that. And um, I remember just thinking, I'm probably going to do that again then, I think. And then I started doing, you know, bits and bobs. Met Simon Moran around that time, who was the, the promoter we talked about earlier. And... In his very sort of disarming, completely casual, really comfortable way, he just said, look, you should go out and sing again. Let me sort it out. You don't have to think about anything. I'll sort it all out. Forget about the money. Forget about anything. Just go on a stage in England and sing. You can sing anything you want. You don't have to sing your old songs if you don't want. So I basically went out and sang a load of songs my dad used to sing around the house, which was Frank Sinatra and stuff like that, a bit of Burt Baccarat. Um... And obviously, I sang "Never Gonna Give You Up," and I think "Together Forever," and maybe one other, just because I think it was unfair not to. If you know what I mean, but and I just kind of really loved it. And and from then, I've never really. St- we've just gradually, gradually, gradually ramped it up a little bit more. Right. And then Peter K comes along. Okay, so tell us how the Peter K thing happened. So I'm singing at a charity event at Warrington Rugby Club. Obviously, Simon Moran was <laughs> heavily involved in that. It's <laughs> the yeah. rugby club, and he'd asked Peter to come and compare the evening so peter's comparing away and just being hilarious as he is and he introduced me um it's a small room this it's like a um um, what would you call it like an event room at the rugby club so it's not like a big yeah function you man it's and it's not particularly big but it's you know it's okay so i'm playing away and um Peter was getting a bit mithered. See, I've used a proper northern term there. He was getting mithered. So he basically got his chair and he sat on stage and he saw my lyric book because, like I said, I hadn't done that many gigs at this point. So I had to have the lyrics on stage just to, just to make sure. So he picked them up and he's like going through and he's going, oh, that's a belter. Do that one. Because <laughs> he's got a microphone, obviously, you know, why wouldn't he? And it was hilarious that night. And we ended up, I ended up sat on his knee at one point singing songs. And it was, it was, you know, Peter really well. So after that night, I think just something just ticked, was ticking over in his head. And he just kind of said, look, would you, I don't know whether he asked me that night, but he asked me very shortly after that, how do you fancy opening up for me? I'm about to go on tour again, you know? And I'm like, I don't even know what that means actually, but yeah, I just kind of said. And um, so I did it and I did, he was only, 
he announced it as Manchester, I think, as the tour that doesn't tour. So he did like five weeks in the first run in Manchester, and I did all of them. Um, I did all of the Londons. He came to London twice. I think he broke all the records at the O2 and at the MEN and probably every other bloody arena he played in. I did Manchester and London. Because um, by that time, I was doing gigs again. And, and you know, um, but also a friend of mine, one of the guys I spoke of before, has become a really big producer and writer. I was chatting to him and he, and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to open up for Peter Kay. And he just sort of said, well, you've got to do a new song. I'm like, what do you mean do a new song? It's not about that. And he said, no, but you're about to play for 50,000 people a night. He said, you need to do a new song. You need to play a new song every night to people. I'm like, yeah, okay, maybe I do. Maybe you're right. So he and I wrote a song. It's called Lights Out. And we got it on the radio and everything and all the rest of it. And I played that song to, I don't know, probably close to hundreds of thousands of people. Millions, wouldn't it? Yeah, I don't know why. Because I didn't do the whole tour. I only did did Manchester and London, which would have been... Because he went back for weeks again. It was such a weird thing. It was like like what I imagined doing a theatre gig's like, where you you live in the town that you're playing in for, you know. Yeah. And um, I really enjoyed it. It was a real eye-opener. Um, I saw his show. I think about. Tw- I mean, Lena, my wife, saw it more than I did. But I think we saw it like twenty-five times. Always or more. funny. Yeah, always funny. Well, also because it's the same show. Of course, it is. It's. It's. You know, he 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 writes it. He works on it. Like I said, he's got it down to the last detail. But it was almost freakily different every night because he's a little bit different every night. The audience is a bit different every night, and. I don't know. Just really interesting to see that, really. I've yeah. been with the Zen master because there's this thing called teaching from behind. Mm-hmm. And so you were learning things that you hadn't learned from the music business, right. but that could relate to what you could do yeah. in the future. And you've gone on to do. And do you think that, because I remember you doing that, and mm-hmm. I remember people saying very quickly, people going, well, you've got to get there for Rick Astley. Wow. You know? And it was a really big deal. And do you think that gave you some confidence? Because so many yeah. people, because you'd never really played to that many people. No, I mean, before, I mean, it, bizarrely, it, it was it was mad in lots of ways. I mean, one of the things for me that was really weird was I didn't he didn't want anybody to know. And obviously, once you've done the first gig, everybody knows. But he just didn't want anybody to know at all. So I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> so I did. I did the gig. I walked off stage and I texted my sister and said, if you want to see Peter Kay, I might be able to get you some tickets. <laughs> and I kind of like, I just thought the whole thing was hilarious. It's like, who says, who says don't tell anybody that you're going to open up for somebody in the MEN? Anyway, it was just mad. It was mad all around, actually. Um, but that was, so you've told us about two. Oscars in Japan, I'm going to count as one. Yeah. Peter Kay. Two. Yeah. Give us a third. Um, that gets you back. I think... I think one of the things that um, I I became really, really comfortable doing was doing things um, with other people, i.e. like the Rewind gigs or Here and Now or whatever it was, where you get a bunch of artists, and obviously that bunch would have been 80s for me. I'm sure they do it with 90s now and whatever. Um, And I never had a thing about who was first on, who's last on, don't really mind. Um, I kind of saw there was a bit of camaraderie in it. There was a bit of... I've sort of become friends with some of those guys that I wasn't really friends with back in the day because I didn't really know them that well. I'd bump into them at Top of the Pops or Formula Eins, as it was called, in Germany or whatever. You know what I mean? You weren't... But when you're sort of hanging around in Henley sort of all afternoon and you're all over it, you're all over the ego, you're all over the sort of like, have you got two bodyguards? Do you know what I mean? No one gives a about... It's just you're in a field. And um, I think it just got really comfy and fun. 
And I went out to the audience thinking, so they haven't actually come to see me. They've just come to have a good time. Um, if the Human League are on last, that's fine. If Tony Hadley's on last, that's fine. If I'm on last, that's fine. It doesn't really matter who's on last. It's just, we're coming. We're going to watch all of you. We're here for the first one. We're here for the last one. If I'm honest as well, and this is a bit of a weird word to use, uh, I was grateful for it. It's like, okay, so I get up. I'm only going to do 40 minutes, maybe a bit more. Um, I'm only going to sing the hits I had. Okay. Okay, this is good. You don't have to sort of... I don't apologise at my own gigs for songs I want to sing from album three, album four, whatever. Do you know what I mean? But I think if you're in front of an audience and all you've got to do is play them songs that, whether they like them or not, I know they've heard them. Mm. It's a very, very different feeling. It's a completely different feeling, actually. I mean, I know it's a cliche, but it's true. Yeah. And it's funny that you said, you know, it's a bit of a weird word, gratitude. I'm grateful. I was grateful then, you're grateful mm. now. Because the thing that was missing from 87 to 92 is you weren't grateful. No. Um, and because it wasn't joyful. Mm. And even though you were living 95% of your dream, the 5% that you weren't living was the most important bit. And by the way, I think that when when you see somebody young now who is in the moment and who is grateful, mm. you know, yeah. um, maybe they had, maybe, you know, they had parents that have been in the business or they've been around it more, yeah. you know, it seems to, to lie a lot more lightly on their shoulders. Mm. And if it lies more lightly, even though it's important, because we we come we came from, you know, a place where if things were were big and important and successful, they so we sort of we sort of imagined they had to be heavy, and maybe they weren't, and maybe we, we made them heavier. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. And now now it feels lighter, but you've you've been, you've been back now for about the same number of years <laughs> as, <laughs> as you were around. That's... You know, that it, is not lost on me. Eighty-seven to ninety-two. That is genuinely not lost on me. So. Are we going to see you disappear for another 22 years in about a week? Because it's about um, a week well, from now. It's really weird, actually. And obviously, with the current times we're in, you know, um, we've done one gig. Well, sorry, we, we've done a few gigs, but earlier this year, you know, January, February, we were in um, Australia and New Zealand. And we were going to go to, well, we went to Japan. We just didn't do the gigs. So, and we were coming back here to the UK. And I was going to do the biggest tour I've done since back in the day. And obviously it all got cancelled. Everyone's gigs got cancelled. And it was, like, pretty horrible, if I'm honest. Because um, we had all the production design ready. And it, we were, like, there, you know what I mean? We were only a few weeks away from it. And it's been quite an adjustment over these past few months. And then we did went out to actually do a gig not long ago, a couple of weeks ago. And that's the only one that I think we're going to manage to do this year. And it feels... It feels weird. I don't feel like myself. Because I've had quite a few years now of... I've done way more gigging in the last few years than I did back in the day when I had the hits, if you know what I mean. So well, for all the years before that, I yeah, did yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's become normal to gig and I really miss the band and I miss, you know, because we really have, I mean, we have fun on stage, don't get me wrong, we really do, but we really have some good times when we're away and, and we all make an effort to do that. And that's a weird thing because there's a huge group of people I don't see at the moment. All right, we do a few Zooms here and there, but we're not... And I'm sure people have got it a lot harder than we are, but I'm just saying relating that to a music career, um, it's a massive part of it. I do feel a bit weird. I've written a load of new things. I've not finished them, and I'm purposely not finishing them because I don't know when we're actually going to release them. And I don't want them to be finished and sat on a hard drive for however long that could be. So I don't know. 
There's an energy in that, isn't there? Yeah. They've got to be box fresh. And as long bit, as they're yeah. not finished and then you finish them, they still will be. Yeah. And I can be in this room for hours on end uh, and come up with nothing but still be all right about it and just go, well, it didn't happen today, but it might happen tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? And um, so in terms of quitting, I don't want to quit right now. Rick Astley, ladies and gentlemen, on the How To Our podcast, best of 2020 from episode nine. Not that there's a worst of, by the way. All our guests have been amazing. I mean, totally amazing. And you can listen to all of them via all our podcasts in long form by staying here or wherever it is you are by going to see all episodes or by going to our very glam and swish website at howtowow.org. It's beautiful. Check it out. The most uplifting and joyous website I personally have ever been involved with. All right, next. We go right back to the beginning of my friend and ex-drinking experience. I'm going to leave it at that. The completely awesome Bryony Gordon, who starred in our first ever episode of How to Well, which was so long ago now. I think it was just moments after that huge meteorite hit the earth and wiped out the most fun dinosaurs. Bryony graced our How to Well microphone with her presence to talk about her riveting new book entitled My Glorious Rock Bottom, in which she discusses her disappearance into the abyss of addiction followed by her subsequent renaissance from the ashes of wanton self-destruction to get back to being the force of nature she is today. I love Bryony, and I know lots of other people do too because they've told me in their thousands. Here she is. You know, we talk about rock bottoms a lot in sobriety, and I remember when I went to treatment, I remember the person saying to me, the, the, the therapist saying to me, addiction is a lift going down, right? So you can choose to get off whenever you want, but if you get back on, you will go further down. And it was interesting because the, the I, I decided to stop drinking after a night out uh, almost three years ago now. And it wasn't any worse particularly than any of my other nights that I'd had. Um, but it was, I just, I think I was like hollowed out by self-loathing. I just couldn't do it anymore. So, you know, on a very, on a sort of get down to the nuts and bolts, I had that August 2017, I had had like, I tried to get sober before, um, I'd, I'd run a marathon, my first marathon in April, 2017. And I, I'd sort of done that to, to prove to myself that I could stop drinking. I was like, that this is what's going to stop me from drinking so much. And, and it didn't. So I stopped drinking for the duration of running the marathon. But if anything, I sort of hit the booze harder. It was like, I was having to balance out the scales. So you'd go off and do like a 10 mile run. And then I'd have a pint for each run after uh, each mile afterwards. And I tried to get sober after that marathon because I'd seen this different way of living, but I'd fallen off the wagon and again, and it got really bad really quickly. So I went to a friend's 40th in the countryside and that sort of ended in an assault basically, which I still find really difficult to sort of vocalize. And then, but a few days after that, I, I just went out on the bank holiday weekend, even though I was supposed to be going away with my husband and daughter, I just left them in the house. And the most important thing to me was to get pissed, was to get out of it. Like nothing else mattered. And um, I just went AWOL on the night. Nothing, nothing terrible happened to me, but I sort of came to in a sort of near stranger's house at flat and to messages from my husband saying, where are you? This is this is this is not tenable anymore. Um, you know, you, you you're making you're worrying us too much. And I was 37. I had a four year old daughter, and I sort of on paper had it all 
you know, a house in Clapham and a best-selling book. And I was interviewing people like Prince Harry, but I was sort of dying inside, you know. And I knew that if I didn't get help then, that I was going to die. And I was either going to die in like one of three ways. The first way being that I was going to actively choose to take my own life, which is which was something that had occurred to me and I'd sort of start to plan out on several occasions, or I was going to die by accidentally choking on my own vomit or falling down some stairs. Or worst of all, I was going to die by continuing to live in this like awful groundhog day existence. And I thought if I picked up a drink again, I didn't know if I would survive it, if that makes sense. Like my self-loathing was so huge and I had to kind of grab on to what little light there was left in my body and, hold on to it really tight and try and get myself better so you say you say nothing terrible happened to you on that last night but yet something terrible happened didn't it and you know there's a fine line because what was terrible is is what happened um to you as a mum and as a wife you know and you know i'm not accusing you here far be it from me but you say nothing terrible particularly happened to you but even then you sort of you're being hard on yourself because of course something terrible happened to you. You know, you were going to have to deal with the consequences of, of what you didn't do that night, which was get home early enough to be up early enough the next day to go to your, your husband's parents. And so you say nothing terrible happened to you. So even now you still distance yourself from that narrative. Mm, I mean, I guess I feel still, um, you know, I, I feel that, it's very difficult you know alcoholism is something that we still a lot of us you know we blame the person for and that including myself you know and I blame yeah. myself for a lot of it and I don't ever want to go back what I mean I guess what I mean is nothing terrible happened in terms of of, of like uh, of danger to myself um but there was such a fine line most nights and yeah it was terrible I mean I was about to I was almost almost certainly Chris if I hadn't stopped drinking I would not have my husband of my daughter now you know I would have lost them I would have lost everything um and 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 I I couldn't square I just thought I saw I was the worst human in the world you know which is probably a pretty terrible thing to have happening in your head the whole time right I couldn't believe that there was anyone else out there in the world who behaved like me like what mother would do this what mother would would put would prioritize basically drinking and taking drugs over being with their family and I had genuinely thought when I got pregnant I thought this is it didn't occur to me that I would ever return to that way of of drinking I thought that this is the cure this is the cure for my party girls I'm going to party partying ways I'm going to grow up and out of it you know and I remember I obviously I stopped drinking for the duration of the pregnancy but I remember two weeks after my daughter was born, I was like at the pub, you know, and I was like, it was like I had to prove to myself that I was still Bryony, you know, and really what I what I was under the influence of was alcoholism, which is the most, you know, powerful, one of the most powerful things out there. And I always thought that the most important thing to me was my daughter. But really, for the first four years of her life until I got sober, the most important thing to me was alcohol. And it pains me to say that still, but I have to kind of say it because it pierces a, like an armour in that bit of denial I can sometimes find myself in where I'm like, oh, it wasn't that bad. Or, you know, when I kind of thoughts of a drink come over my head. Um, but I've realised, and this is part of the reason I wanted to write this book, because I remember walking into treatment and the first person I met was another woman who lived a mile away 
who had exactly the same sobriety date as me and had kids the same age as me and and we're still best friends to this day and I realized I wasn't the only woman out there who um behaved like this and I wasn't actually a bad person I was just an ill person who sometimes did bad things because of that illness if that makes sense and uh, it was such a balm to my soul you know it all makes sense. And this book, in, in many ways, it's a story of three angels. And those angels, you mentioned one there. Uh, one is Holly, one is Peter, uh, and one is Harry. And you've got your little angel, of course, your little girl as well. But it's funny, isn't it? Because this self-destruction, you know, and I've been there, not to the extent that you, you've been there, but I've been there. I'm, I'm sure many of us have been there, you know, one way or another. You know, when, you, when you're in the midst of self-destruction, you know, you are repunishing yourself for the things you've already, or you think you've already done wrong, the things you're guilty of, the shame. Uh, that you have to sustain and you are also pre-punishing yourself for things you are bound you think you are bound to still get wrong you know and it's this never-ending spiral of of um it's it's well it's just it's just horror and it's funny because you talk later on in the book about you know going to 12 steps and um there's the god figure or the higher power and it's it's so funny that so many people who uh, readily admit that they've been through hell deny that there's heaven <laughs> i find that such a funny juxtaposition absolutely right god yeah but you're right this and also the shame cycle like sometimes i thought i was i was like i i was just drowning in shame right and what would happen was i'd go out and something bad would happen or i'd embarrass myself in some way and then i'd wake up in the morning and i'd be completely horrified i'm never gonna drink again i'm never gonna drink again i'm never gonna drink again then we get to four o'clock in the afternoon and the horror of how i'd behaved the night before was so huge that i was like i've got to drink again i've got to drink again because i a had to numb it out but b i was like i am going to create a new shame which is going to delete this shame or you know i'm it's going to that shame that happened last night is going to get buried under a new shame which is madness but that was the only way i knew how to live so i was sort of like existing i was like my life was like uh, there was like this kind of kfc tower burger of shame above me do you know what i mean like one level after another um and you know and, and eventually <laughs> I was going to kind of like die under it. And I realized, and I remember one of the most powerful things that someone said to me when, when I kind of started looking to get sober was, was that shame dies when you expose it to the light. And I couldn't believe it that, and keep saying this because I still can't believe it. That there are people out there who have been, who have experienced the same things as me. And with this book coming out, I've had so many messages on Instagram and in my email from women specifically saying, oh, my God, thank you. I, I, I literally thought I was the, the only person in the world who did this. And that's why I want this book. I wanted to write this book because it's like shame keeps us sick, Chris. Shame will kill us in the end. And either I remember when I when I first when the book, I remember giving this book to my mum to read, which obviously was a <laughs> was you know a difficult thing to do and she said to me are you sure about this briny are you sure that you want this out there because it then it's out there and and you know and i'm not sure people are going to react that well to it and i she said i think that you think that lots of people have done the same things as you because you sit in these 12-step meetings and you hear people you know saying you think this is normal but it isn't briny and that reaction was exactly why i knew that i had to, to let this book go ahead because 
because it is normal for a lot of people. Do you know what I mean? Like there are this behavior becomes normal. And some people have said, wow, some of the stuff in your book is really extreme and heavy. And I'm like, it is, but it's but it's also real life and it happens. And either we carry on ignoring and pretending it doesn't happen. And, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people um are trapped in this cycle of shame and sickness, which affects not just them, but everyone around them, right? Or we admit it happens and we allow these people to admit it happens and we start to get well and we start to heal. And, oh, my God, I sound like some cringy, you know, kind of spiritual whatever. But 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 so it's so important we talk about these things. I'm not an evil person. I'm not a bad person. I'm just another person who accidentally thought that alcohol was going to kind of help help her because guess what it's a depressant that masquerades remarkably well as a relaxant right it's like an oscar winning actor and it's also one of the only ways that any of us in britain <clears throat> were taught to cope with things so you've had a bad day have a drink do you know what i mean so is it any surprise that some of us get caught in this trap you know and i think it's really important we talk about this because alcohol you know alcohol is going to kill more people this year than coronavirus Right. Three million people worldwide will die because of alcohol related illnesses. And yet we don't seem to be doing anything to protect humans <laughs> from this from this very legal drug that's sold on supermarket shelves, which in a way adds to the shame of it. Like, why can't I drink responsibly? Why can't I just have one? My friends can. Why am I such a fuck up on a floor? Sorry if I swore. And, you know, I'm not anti alcohol, but I am anti us not acknowledging the pain that it causes a lot of people, you know, and, and, and I just, so yeah, <laughs> I'll shut up now. Bryony Gordon for PM, everyone, or something really useful because she speaks the truth always. More of that chat. And when I say more, what I actually mean is all of that chat on episode one of How to Wow from wherever you get your podcasty stuff and nonsense fine people. Just have a look for our archive there. And now my final best of 2020 subject in this cluster of highlights or bundle or parcel. Take your pick all broadcasting terms there for you, Mahashi, should you be interested. How about a large dollop of SuperVet to finish you off? Yes, I'm thinking that might just about do it until next time, my friends. I give you my best friend, other than my wife, children, ex-wife and rescue dog Sparkle. That is Noel Fitzpatrick. Noel and I have known each other forever since our mothers had us in the same year, in the same shed, down at the bottom of the same garden in a little-known part of Ireland called County Catty O'Magdogsil. It's true. No second Sunday Times number one bestseller is entitled How Animals Save My Life. Enjoy a small excerpt here from our mammoth no-holes-barred chat from episode 23 of How to Wow. In terms of nowness, the, the challenge with nowness is we can talk again till the cows come home. My next book's going to be called Till the Cows Come Home. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> I wouldn't. I want to read the book. It's titled "The Cows Have Come." The home. cows have come home. Noel's yeah, cows yeah, have yeah, come. Yeah. I can't wait for Noel's cows to come it's, home. It's going to be great. I'm going to be there that day. Yeah. Uh, well, it was either going to be that, or you can teach an old dog new tricks. But no, we, the, the we cows have cows come have home. come home. Yeah. I like it. I like it. So the cows came home in that moment because I think nowness is not something you strive for. It's something that occasionally you're lucky enough to experience. I remembered it in that room with Noah. I was just totally present in awe of this baby that had come against the odds, like in awe. And again, I stood there on the street thinking, wow, you know, there's an Irish phrase that I could use there beginning with F, me. Uh, this is amazing. I'm standing on the street 
thinking, well, this is just the beginning. And that really was the beginning of the book. That was that was why I thought, okay, I'm going to try cuz cuz yeah, I've 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 read a zillion books from Robbins through to Tolle through to Daniel Coyle and all that stuff about reprogramming your brain. But none of it works unless you stop taking yourself too seriously. None of it. And I took, I've taken myself seriously for 40 years. To, wh- wh- I mean, up my own, there's a medical term, sphincter. And, uh, <laughs> Which one? That, well, that's we have legal. several, don't we? That's legal, I think. It's a legal term. But you yeah. can't crawl in there yeah. and stay in there mm. because then you're just deluding yourself. Which, uh, so you get covered in shit. Well, you become, you become, when it hits the fan, you're doing it to yourself. And, and I've realized that the hard way. And I've, you know, in my personal and other life, I've made tons of errors that had I known what I know now, I wouldn't have done. But you know what? All I can do is be today. I'm, I'm here in a studio with you in Virgin today, right now. And I could walk outside this building and fall down the stairs in the local tube and not die. Not again, not again. Uh, but I'm just saying. You've done enough falling downstairs. I'm just saying that anybody listening to this may feel, you know, I'm having a bad day. Things are not going too well for me. This is, this is our, well, there is light, but first you have to get over yourself. And this entire book for me, it should have been called Getting Over Yourself, actually. I like, uh, I like the title, How I Almost Saved My Life. It's better. It's more, more engaging. Well, no, of course. I'm joking. But that's what it means. Animals save my life because they've allowed me to take myself less seriously. Take yourself, not yeah. you, yourself. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So um, the queen of Zen, if, if Eckhart Tolle is the king of Zen, I, for me, he is the king of Zen. He's the king of living in the now. The queen of Zen, which is so ironic, is your mum. Mm. And so, like, you have the most Zen mum I've ever come across from a mum point of view, right? And you have a lot of Zen mates. I don't count myself one of them. I'm thoughtful, but I'm not Zen. I would love to be. I aspire to be Zen. But your mum is unbelievably Zen, right? And your dad, who was totally committed to work, um, didn't really deal in emotions, okay? So he was a bit, he was a lot like you, but what, he parked, he said, well, I'm going to give everything to the animals and, and to, to what I do. I'll get up in the morning, I go to work, you know, I have children, they can see what I do. They can learn from behind, if you like, by, you know, by what I do, but not by me teaching or telling them what to do, by seeing what I do. So you have your Zen mum and you have your unap- unapologetic workaholic dad, right? And you're, you're the sort of, you're one of the offspring of that combination, aren't you? And so your dad's all right. Because he's he's made a deal with himself that he's not going to deal in emotion, ever, and he didn't till his dying day, from what you've told me. And your mum is going to deal it, live in the here and the now, which means she's never going to fear death, right? And so you talk about legacy all the time. Legacy is about you know virtual immortality, um, leaving something behind, leaving the world better than how you left it, but being conscious of the fact that's what you're trying to do, which is a little bit you know sort of a, a manifestation of a fear of death. You you talk about the fact you want to engage in real life and emotion, but your dad never did. So you are talk talk about being caught between rock and a hard place. Yeah, well, I I I'm, I managed to get home to see Mammy uh, 
just when lockdown eased here and in Ireland and it was only I could only go out and in and out in the same day. Yeah. Pretty much like you and I did when we, we when we went. But I mean you say that, but also I mean respect to Minnie, your mother, uh, who I the the biggest honor of my life was doing her elegy, you know? Seriously. And I genuinely mean that. Because she was my mum here. And my mother knew that. And actually, the best event that I have ever been to, and I'll, I'll come back to your point, the best physical event, like entertainment event, I've ever been to was in your mum's living room when I brought Kev the guitarist from Cornwall uh, to play on your mum's sofa to play Vincent and other greatest hits that Rita and Minnie had chosen because I had got some uh, jelly sweets from Harry and Meghan that were too posh to for anybody to consume except your mum. And I sent some to my mum and, and brought some to your mum and then we FaceTimed so that they would hand a sweet to each other <laughs> while Kev played Vincent. And other great madrigals. And I went to make the tea. And you went to it. But it was brilliant. That was, that was the best event I've ever been to in my life. And Kev was like, shall I play another one? I'm like, yes, of course, play another one, Kev. But the great thing about Kev was um, I met him when he was busking outside the very first One Live Festival when Genesis, um, Mike and the Mechanics were going to be on stage. And he's a big Mike Rutherford fan, so he just wanted to stand there and listen. And my mum arrived and thought he was part of the entertainment and she felt really important bringing Kev into the... And the security guys, of course, let anybody in with my mum. So your mum and my mum formed a band with Kev in the field by the side of the stage before Mike and the Mechanics. It was priceless. And that's my mum's favourite picture. She has it by her by her chair of your mum and my mum with the guitar, Kev's guitar. But, but to come to your point, both your mum and my mum were zen... And also, I would imagine, married to men who were very different to that. And my mother said to me, the most important thing she she said to me the last time I was over, because I'd written the prologue to the book and I read it to her. And she said, and in the book I said, well, maybe, maybe all of this is now too late. And I thought she was falling asleep on the chair. And because she has like some scoliosis now which bends her head uh, spine and uh, all of a sudden she looked up like that and, and looked at me from the side and said it's never too late Noel it's never too late and I think that that is just a wonderful message of Zen for the book that anybody at any stage whether you're 84 she's 91 so whether you're 91 or you're 21 it's never too late she, well, she's she's so tolle as well, but she's older than him, so she's ahead of him. She says on page three sixty two, um, she says, "Sure, Noel, I'm grand. I'm grand in the here and now." I mean, that's like you know, that's Ram Dass speak from the sixties, and it's from your mum who's still around in Ireland. I'm grand in the here and now, Noel, because the here and now is all we've got. I want for nothing, and I've never wanted for anything, Noel, because it just ties you down, and you can't take it with you anyway. In the end, I mean. That's sort of the opposite of how I've lived and how you're living. You know, you have this vast company, you have this vast empire, you you have this vast creation, 
and she's a, a, an extremely simple lady. And when yes. we went over on your birthday for that for that day, you know, and we went in the living room, and we, she didn't know we were coming, you know, and she she still lives in the very very small. You know, not Richard Courtesy romantic farmhouse at all that you were born in. It's really small. It's in Ireland. And small cottages in Ireland are the smallest cottages in the world. And the stove that your mummy and daddy used to cook on is the same stove. And keep lambs warm and alive. Yeah. Yeah. Your sister cooked Sunday lunch on that day for us. And this is proper. And we went into the living room. She was reading a Bible. And she was so peaceful. So peaceful. A woman of faith. You know, and she doesn't fear death. And you talk about this thing called not internalization, but the opposite, eternalization in the book. Um, and she, she again, she, 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 there isn't a book, but if she there was, embodies she, she'd have written it. What is that? Um, actually, I'm really pleased you picked it up. The, the, I, I, the first chapter of the book is called internalization, which is what I do all the time. I internalize all the angst, all the... And the end of the book is eternalization, which isn't so much finding a legacy. It's about being at peace, regardless of whether you are here or somewhere else. And she has often said to me, but especially on this last time, my bags are, are, are have been packed for some time for when, whenever he calls. And she said, and uh, you know what? I don't actually need any bags because where I'm going, there's no baggage. And her philosophy is magnificent because she's not attached to anything material or anything of life except as an eternity. And she truly is, truly, and I mean this most sincerely, is looking forward to lying beside daddy again because she thinks of all the wonderful things that, they didn't. Ha- they didn't have time because he was too busy working, and that they can experience again in eternity. And she believes. I asked her actually, "Mammy, do you do you actually believe in the afterlife?" And she said, "No, no, it's not after and all. It's now." And she's like, "It's as part of this living room as me and you, you know." Just got to say before we wrap up, and we will. Um... About about this legacy thing, you do say the word legacy in here. You say you, you use the word legacy and use the word you often use the phrase, you know, trying to change the world. Why 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 do you why do you want a legacy? Why do you want to change the world? I just think it's so damn unfair. I I I, I, I look. I really really people think. Oh well, no, you're just being preachy, preaching from the pulpit again. Well, you know what? God, just just. Go away if you don't want to hear it. But this is what I have to say. I think it's really unfair that we have one planet that we know of that's habitable at the moment. And I get it. I understand exploring other planets. And I refer to that a lot in the book, Intelligent Life, blah, blah, blah. 13.8 billion years, blah, blah, blah. Lots of dark matter, blah, blah, blah. And and that actually came out in the end because it was like there's, you know, most of the universe we know nothing about. And then we don't look at the light matter inside dogs and cats at all. But here's why it's unfair. It's unfair because we bring children into this world that we are messing up. And we ignore the animals that can help us to solve that by killing them. And what I mean by that is, in the broader sense, we kill elephants, we kill rhinoceroses, we kill the planet through global warming and we refuse to... You interviewed Rod Stewart and Rod said, oh, it's, it's, it's a bit late. And... 
uh, Rod is is my other friend, Rick's biggest hero. He's an obsessive Rod fan. So if Rod said it's too late, oh, my God, Rick's going to go into a depression. So I'm like, man, we're all screwed here. And you've said this before. Oh, you know, it's going to be a tidal wave, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know what? That's all our fault because we could coexist on the planet. So the reason that it drives me insane is I can't deal with the unfairness that we take all the animals for granted when they're trying... Just because they don't speak English or French or Chinese doesn't mean they're not speaking. They're telling us from a lion to a, a, a pangolin with or without coronavirus through a porpoise, through a dog, you are crazy. What are you doing? Bringing children and progeny, progeny into the world that you're messing up while you look for other planets. Oh, well done, civilization. And that drives me mental because on that level, on a global level, but also on a parochial level, it drives me crazy that human medicine moves on and on and on and on and on. And most human doctors never even think where the drugs and implants come from. Well, they come from an experimental animal, my friend, because you are my friend. And I, I want to understand where you're coming from here. But how come Mary's dog can't have that until the intellectual property and the patent rights run out 20 years later and they can suddenly have the cancer drug? Oh, really? Well, their brothers and sisters were killed to give you the cancer drug. That drives me mental. Why can't we move forward together and look at prostate cancer in dogs and prostate cancer in humans at the same time? Look, you and I are both of an age where that's a freaking potential for us. Why wouldn't we look at a clinical trial in dogs with 300 dogs with prostate cancer rather than giving dogs the cancer and then looking at them? Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So on the global level, on the parochial level that we need to learn about medicine in, in dogs and cats and pangolins and humans at the same time and, and look at naturally occurring disease as a model for human disease rather than just killing animals. And the, sec and the third and final and the most important thing is, oh my God, this drives me mental. The whole concept of sentience. We think we're so clever, really, while people are making up lies all over the place and now people are going online and believe, investing. I don't know why I saw this. On my news feed the other day, while I was in the toilet, I saw that they're believing in virtual people more than in real. They're looking at people who are virtual. It's not even real. And we talk about sentience like we're the cleverest people on the cleverest creatures on the planet. Nonsense. How how can an elephant know that the person that saved them died and they're two days away and trek all the way to his house. Did someone ring the elephant and say, hey, mate, you're the guy who saved you from being electrocuted is dead. Do you want to go and visit his grave? No, the elephant knew because we're not the only sentient species. And the longer we have the arrogance and the belligerence and the nonsense to think that we are, the more we will destroy the world for your children who I love. You cannot have your four kids in we are we us that's what i mean about legacy and that's why i'm driven this is the fundamental reason i just don't think it's fair i don't think it's fair to the animals and i don't think it's fair to your children and if i can do anything it's to make people think about that in this book and if i've done that for one person if i've made them think and for another person that i've brought some light into their life if they're feeling lonely or sad or depressed like i've been or anxious or whatever else, the other crap that goes with 
life, then it's worth writing the book. No, Fitzpatrick, a real-life superhero and my real-life bestest friend on the planet. And with that, I am out of here. Have a lovely everything. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe to rate and review How to Wow from wherever you get your podcasts and by going to howtowow.org. Cheers, everyone. Ta-da! That said, this has only been part one of our best of, and there is a part two to be had, also known as episode 31. Ta-da! Sorry. Ta-da! Ta-da!